Well, this morning we are going to be, as I've already mentioned, we are going to be considering um, the mission and vision of Copperfield Church. And typically I would tell you to turn in your Bibles and stand, uh, but it'll be a little bit different this morning as we're going to survey a good bit of Scripture in thinking about where God is calling us. And so uh, many of the Scriptures will be available on the screen, so don't panic, don't, don't worry. And then the notes from this sermon will be available online um, in the days ahead. 95,852. 95,852. That is the projected number of households in our area by 2024. It is estimated that 303,000 people will reside in those 95,852 households. More than 80,000 of those people will be under the age of 17, with nearly 125 of those people starting their careers and their families. God in his providence, in his wisdom, has placed us in a community where most of our neighbors, our co-workers, our acquaintances, and friends are part of a diverse middle American family that enjoys a relative degree of affluence and youthfulness. Roughly 31 years ago, when God moved our founding pastor, Larry Womack, to plant Copperfield Church in this community, God knew the stewardship that he would be entrusting to us. He knew that this community would need a church that would reach those that moved to the suburbs of Harris County. God knew that many of these families would most likely have a lot of their basic needs met. Most would have stable jobs. Most would be relatively well-educated and married. Yet none of these things that these people would possess would ultimately be able to satisfy the desires of their hearts and bring them the peace and security that they long for. So God, in his wisdom, planted a church in the middle of this community, a lighthouse of sorts, a beacon of hope in the hustle and the bustle and the grind of suburban life. And for the past several months, a diverse group of people from within our church Staff members and church members have been meeting to discern where God is leading us as a congregation, and through prayer and discussion, we considered where God had placed us, whom God had placed within the congregation, and also the collective passions, our heart as a congregation. We studied our community, what our gifts were, and the things that excited us, and began to consider where these three areas overlap. And what you're going to find is that some of the results of this process you're going to hear about today and then over the course of the next several weeks as we renew our mission and vision is Copperfield Church. So to begin this renewal of our mission and vision, I want to share with you what we believe God has revealed to us regarding a renewed mission statement as a church. What we believe that he wants us to be about at this time of our congregation's history. Our mission is to invite all 
to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. I repeat that. Our mission is to invite all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. With every fiber in my body, I believe that there is hope for every one of the homes in this community. Why? Because we're just such a great church? No, because we have such a great, incredible God. Invite all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. I believe that all 95,000 homes and 303,000 people in this area can experience true, abiding, lasting hope in Jesus. While many of the households will attempt to find their hope in finances, in their recreation, in their careers, or in their children, or in their spouses, or in their education, while many of these households will attempt to fill this God-sized void with things other than God, we, Copperfield Church, in the wisdom of God, have been placed here in this community at this time in history to lovingly and intentionally beckon, invite people to build homes of hope. Hope-filled homes in Jesus. To remind them that there is no other source of hope. There is no other source of joy. There is no other hope that can be compared to Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 27, where he writes, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope for glory, our hope for restoration, our hope for redemption, our hope for salvation, it is not going to be found in the things of this world, but in Christ Jesus which is why we believe that we are called to invite all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. What does it look like for Copperfield Church to be engaged in this mission of inviting all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus? Two things that I would have us see this morning. The first is this. We must see the hopelessness and futility around us. We must see the hopelessness and the futility around us. We will never think to invite our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and our acquaintances to build hope-filled homes in Jesus if we do not see their lives filled with hopelessness and futility. We will never carry this mission beyond Copperfield to the nations, to the ends of the earth, if we do not perceive that our world is lost and dying and without hope apart from Christ. We will simply continue to live with ease and a lack of concern for those that God has entrusted to us as a great commission stewardship. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning regarding our mission. We are in no way abandoning our commitment to foreign missions. We will continue to give sacrificially and go faithfully to the nations. We are as committed today as we have ever been to seeing the nations come to Christ, yet we also must recognize that we have a stewardship to those in close proximity to us. This is the biblical mandate of Acts 1.8, where we must also reach our Jerusalem in Judea as we go into Samaria in the uttermost parts of the world. Yet, 
Now receive this. this. This can be heavy and hard for us to hear, but this is the reality that we have to confront if we are actually going to move into obedience to this mission. If we are only ever willing to fly halfway across the world to share the gospel, but we won't cross the street to share the gospel, something is deeply wrong. We must be both for the nations and our neighbors. And if we're going to reach our neighbors, then we must have eyes to see hopelessness and futility around us. We must recognize that anytime someone is building their life on something other than God and his promises in Christ, their lives are being built on futility. Consider what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, regarding how often our world thinks about the things of God. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? And do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep down and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my word and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and the destruction was complete. Some would say we live in the Bible Belt. Others would say not only the Bible Belt, but the buckle of the Bible Belt. Our community claims to know Jesus. It's full of people that claim to know Jesus. In fact, they would even call him Lord. But if you look at the the direction, the trajectory of our community, it's obvious that we may call him Lord, but we do not do what he says. So we have a community that is building its life on the foundation of sand, and everything is fine, and Jesus is great until the storm comes, and then the destruction is complete. Jesus is saying they are building their life on sand and when the trial comes, the devastation arrives, the diagnosis hits, the storm of life blows when the flood waters rise. The home that they built will come crashing to the ground. Our mission is to invite all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus so that when the storm comes, It is on the rock of Christ, and they endure. This is what's happening in our community. People are acquainted with Jesus, but he is not the ultimate source of their hope and their security and peace in the world. He's an add-on. He's fire insurance, but he is not their hope of glory. And we must see this. If we are ever going to compel them, invite them, to find real, lasting, abiding hope in Jesus. But we can not only see this hopelessness and futility around us, we must perceive that this is a temptation within our own selves. We are not immune to the temptation to find our hope in finances, in our careers, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our education, in our property values, our insurance plans, our healthcare system, within our politicians, our recreation, or our dreams or ambitions. We are prone to the very same distractions that our neighbors are prone to. 
The love of the world is a temptation that we all face and must fight against through faith in Christ. In fact, I believe that one of the reasons why we often fail to see the hopelessness and the futility of others around us is because we have invited hopelessness and futility into our lives as well. I think this is one of the reasons why so few of us have the conversation that the Apostle Peter expects us to have at some point in our life. You know what I'm talking about? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, Peter writes, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that the one who speaks maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Did you notice the assumption that Peter is making in this verse? I always heard this verse growing up is go out there and defend the faith. That's not what the verse says. Be a good Bible reader. What does the verse say? Be ready to give an answer when you're asked. Peter assumes that we will need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have because apparently people will look at our lives and wonder, why is it so different from the rest of the world? Peter writes, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you because people are going to ask, which leads to an incredibly uncomfortable realization, doesn't it? When was the last time someone asked you about the hope that you have. And as one theologian would put it, could it be that the reason why they're not asking us about our hope is because we look like we have the same hope they have? So people don't wonder, why is the church so different when the storm comes? When the winds blow and the flood rises, they go, well, they're just as anxious about their finances as I am. They're just as anxious about their health as I am. They're just as anxious about their education and their career as I am. They're just as anxious about They must not have a hope that's any different than mine because their hope seems to be shakable. Peter says, those that have understood something about Christ will have a hope that when the storm comes, when the trial comes, it will provoke people to go, something's different about that person. They're not making light of their suffering. They're not making light of their difference. But it's obvious that they have a hope that transcends the situation and they're not building their life on sand. We have to be able to perceive the hopelessness and the futility not only around us, but how we have bought into the lie ourselves that something other than God in Christ can give me satisfaction and give me hope. Oh, could it be that it looks like we are hoping in our careers, our finances, our families, our education, our retirement, our politics and politicians, our country, and our own strength instead of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Oh, may God reveal that to us this morning and cause us to repent of putting our hope in anything other than Him. So the first step for us as a church in fulfilling this mission of inviting all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus is to see the hopelessness and futility around us and in ourselves so that we might be compelled to move forward with the invitation. And what is the invitation? Second point, 
we must invite them to find hope in Jesus. And if part of you is going, well, this, this just seems like what the church is supposed to do. Yes, that's right. <laughs> when you get together to put together a mission and vision for the church, you recognize that it's not your church to get to dictate the mission and vision for. It's Christ's church, and you just try to figure out how he's got you providentially in a particular area to fulfill that mission with the gifts that you have. We have no right to tell Christ, you know, this is what we feel like we're going to do. We say, Lord, what do you want us to do with the gifts that we have where we're at? And that's what we want to do. And so what I want to do is we want to know and see the hopelessness and the futility that is around us that we might begin to invite people to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. And then that leads us to this invitation that we would ask, hey, would you come find hope? Where? In Jesus. When Jesus saw the hopelessness and the futility of the crowds that surrounded him, he responded by inviting them, calling them to himself. He didn't say, hey, you really need to come clean your life up before you can come. He said, no, come to me. We see this in at least two places within the Gospels. First, we see it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where Jesus is looking upon this weary and rest people, weighed down by burdens, and Jesus says to them, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe you're here this morning, and your soul is so restless, and you're trying to find the next thing. What is the thing What is the thing that is going to bring rest for my restlessness? It's not a thing, it's a person. His name is Jesus, and he's calling you this morning, come to me. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls them to themselves. He calls them in all their brokenness, their pain, their confusion, their weariness. And he told them that their hope for rest would be found in him alone. Jesus invites them to himself the hope of glory. We see a similar passage in John 7, 37 through 38, where Jesus calls out to the crowd and he invites them to himself. John 7, 37 through 38. He goes, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. This passage always reminds me of of a kind of juvenile aspect of my life back in college. Um, I I did not have the benefit of growing up within the Jesus freak movement. You're aware of that? it, It predates me a little bit. But I was kind of raised within a similar culture to that. My mom had me um, listening to Keith Green growing up. Some of you don't know who that is, but some of you do know exactly who he is. And he was considered a Jesus freak. This is the Jesus movement. And so there was a time in college that was just kind of, it's a tad ridiculous. I'm just going to admit. But I would just wear shirts that would try to get attention. And one of the shirts that I had that I bought at Lifeway, those used to be stores that we had, they closed them. And his shirt said, heavy drinker, which is very disorienting when you wear it at the Baptist collegiate ministry. Okay. Very concerning, you know. But it, on, the back of the ver- on the back of the shirt, you know, the shirt says heavy drinker. You know, I'm all big and bold and whatnot. And I wasn't big and bold. I was just bold. But on the verse, it says, anyone thirsty, come to me and drink. 
And while it was juvenile and kind of weird and cringy to have worn that shirt, it's also kind of pointing to the fact that what Jesus stood up and did, which, which was just kind of wild in its boldness, is he stands up in the middle of a festival, and he doesn't say, hey, if you're thirsty, come to this and drink. He says, come to me. He prioritizes himself. He says, you come to me, and I can give you something that no one can ever give you. Everlasting satisfaction, living water will spring up within your soul. Nobody makes those types of claims, but Jesus does. And he invites them to come to him and find a satisfaction. And this might not always seem significant to us because we've got water everywhere, right? But in this limited goods society, water was not always abundant. And water that could be drank was not always abundant. So this idea, you, you know this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well in John 4. He tells, her, he tells you, if you knew who was speaking to you, you'd ask me for water. And I'd give you water that you would never satisfy. Because, oh, well, give me some of that water. That sounds great. I wouldn't have to keep coming out to this well. He says, no, you don't perceive what I'm saying to you. What I'm saying to you is that if you would find me, there would be a satisfaction like a thirsty soul. Ever been thirsty? Imagine never thirsting again. Why? Because the spiritual satisfaction that Christ brings enters into us by faith. And Christ invites the world to himself. All the spiritually thirsty people who are trying to find satisfaction in the broken cisterns, the waterless wells of the world. And we go from one to the other to the next. Mm, Let me drink from my career. Mm, Water ran out. Let me drink from my my family. Oh, that that didn't satisfy. Maybe one day I'm going to find that well. And Jesus says, no, 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 come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. What you are looking for is already here. Come and drink deeply of the living water of Jesus. The satisfaction that they were looking for would only be found in Jesus. This world would never satisfy them. This world would never give them true, lasting, abiding hope. And you say, well, that's what Jesus was doing. How does this have anything to do with us as the church? He said that this is our our mission. This is who we are. We're going to be inviting all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus, and we're going to invite them to Jesus. But that was Jesus inviting them. Why why do I have to be a part of it? And I love how John, who wrote John 7.57, also writes Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And here we see that not only does rest come from Jesus for those that drink deeply, of eternal life, but as those that have been filled by the Spirit of God as the church, the bride of Christ, we take up the work of inviting all to come to find hope for life in Christ. The book, our book, the Word of God, the Bible, concludes, it ends with this gracious, glorious invitation. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the Spirit and the bride, as the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. We alongside and filled with the Spirit are to be engaged in the work of invitation, of inviting all to come to Jesus, to find 
hope in Jesus, to fill their homes with hope that only Jesus can bring, to come and enjoy this free gift. Brothers and sisters, friends, our community and our world is starving. It is hungry for this kind of hope. They are looking for hope that does not disappoint. And that is what we, Copperfield Church, have been placed in this community to do, to invite people all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. We want every household to know and experience what the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what Paul says we as the church of Jesus Christ are to be engaged in. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And this hope does not put to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you want a hope that does not put you to shame? Hopes that put you to shame are the type of hopes that are false hopes that you've put your trust in that. And you're saying, that's going to be my security. That's going to be the thing that helps me make it. That's going to be the thing that gives me identity and peace. And all such hopes are fleeting and failing. And they will put you to shame if they have not already done so. But there is a hope that does not put to shame. The hope of the glory of God that we find through Jesus Christ our Lord. This world cannot offer this type of hope. This world is constantly on the brink of devastation and constantly putting people to shame that have put their trust in it. The world is full of threats against our hope. I mean, goodness, just in the last few weeks, for those of you that keep up with the news, our own president, speaking of impending Armageddon in light of the threat of nuclear war between Ukraine and Russia. Like that, like, you're going to put your hope in something that can be shaken by that? Our newspapers are full of reports of mass murderers threatening our hope for life. Well, oh, I've got money. Gas. <laughs> Grocery prices. They continue to increase as a result of inflation and your money that you think is worth so much is worth a lot less than it was a year ago. And so hope for financial security and career satisfaction is threatened. Those of you that work in or around the oil field know how fickle the security of an economy can be. Marriage is hard. Parenting is harder. While our health care gets more technically advanced, our life expectancy as a nation continues to drop because our health care, as advanced as it can be, can't give us the hope that we need. And we're dying of what sociologists are calling deaths and diseases of despair. 
Why? Because we've placed our hope in all these other things, and these things keep slipping through our hands. And so we despair because that was the thing that was going to do what we needed it to do. You can't find anything that is a sure thing except the one thing, Christ Jesus. The things that this world offers as a source of hope will always be threatened, never enduring, never lasting, always changing. Yet there is a hope that is more than wishful thinking or optimism. There is a hope that is certain. There is a hope that is sure. There is a hope that is immovable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our hope. He is our peace. We must build our lives in Him. We must invite all to build their lives in Him. This is our mission is Copperfield Church. This is what God has called us to. That in a world of uncertainty and movable, shakable hope, we would invite all to build hope-filled homes in Jesus. Would your life be full of this hope today? Then you are invited to come to Jesus. Would you pray with me? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.